Welcome to Connect the Dots, a podcast produced by the Center for Progressive Reform with your host, Rob Virchik. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to continue our discussion from last episode titled Fossil Fuel on Trial. That is, we're interested in climate change lawsuits in which municipalities are suing oil and gas companies over the damages of climate impacts. In the last episode, episode five, we began a discussion with Kate Sears, who serves on the Board of Supervisors for Marin County. Marin County has brought a lawsuit against Chevron and other oil and gas companies over damages that they attribute to climate change impacts. This lawsuit is one of a series of lawsuits brought around the country by municipalities like the city of Santa Cruz, Imperial Beach, San Francisco, King County, Washington, state of Rhode Island, city of Baltimore, New York City, and so on. We began the interview with Kate Sears in episode five, and in this episode, episode six, you'll hear the remainder of that interview. We're also going to hear an interview today that I did with Professor Tom McGarity of the University of Texas about the effect that these lawsuits might have on the oil and gas industry as a whole and about efforts to curb climate change. At this point, I should let you know that this episode, episode six, is the final episode of our season series on climate change impacts and how to prepare for them. In episodes one through four, we looked at food production in the United States and climate change, the issue of human migration and relocation. We talked about toxic floodwaters and also the impacts that climate change are predicted to have on workers in the United States. We capped that off with a brace of episodes about climate litigation. That's a strategy some municipalities are using to recoup the costs for preparing for climate change. Now, when the first part of the interview I had with Kate Sears, she talked mainly about the impacts that Marin County was experiencing and why she thought the lawsuit was important at this time. On the topic of impacts, she talked about coastal erosion, record king tides, blue sky flooding occurring 30 times a year, and a recent vulnerability assessment that the county had conducted showing that they have a multi-million dollar challenge in terms of rebuilding roads, bridges, and other kinds of infrastructure to suit the demands of a warmer climate. As to why the lawsuit's important at this time, Supervisor Sears noted that there were new developments in climate science making it easier and more accurate to determine how much of the carbon emissions in the atmosphere can be attributed to individual oil or gas companies. She also noted that new techniques in widely accepted modeling can now more accurately show what the impacts of climate change will be in certain regions of the country. And finally, and most intriguingly, she pointed to a new trove of information, some of it publicly available, which is giving us new insights in what the oil and gas industry knew decades before in terms of climate change. The information suggests that the oil and gas industry knew that greenhouse gas emissions were causing climate change, and they knew what those impacts would be in the future. Such information also suggests that many in the oil and gas industry deliberately sought to deceive the public about the facts of climate change, even as oil companies were fortifying their own facilities to survive sea level rise and other impacts of climate change. In the second part of the interview coming up, Kate Sears and I delve into the details of the legal claims, ask why it's taken more than a year just to decide what court should hear the case, 
and talk about what this lawsuit might mean for other communities, particularly communities without the resources of Marin County, California. So let's get to it. The second half of the episode with Kate Sears, member of the Board of Supervisors of Marin County. When we left off, she was just about to talk about what forum this lawsuit should be heard in, and I was about to jump in with a question. I, w- I want to get to the forum in a minute, okay. the, the fact that you filed in state court. But yeah. before that, I, yeah. I want to ask you a question that my students ask me. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and that is that when you when you file a case in, in tort, you know, based on on a nuisance theory, which is one of the theories that you're using, the, the idea that um, that the defendants are behaving in a way that is uh, interfering with the county's uh, right to use its own property the way that it that it wants to and to and to, and to enjoy those resources. One of the questions that always comes up is is causation is is establishing that the harms that you are highlighting are the harms that are caused not by uh, climate change in general or 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 by the carbon emissions that have lodged into the atmosphere since the Mm -hmm. industrial revolution Mm -hmm. but you've got to argue or the county has to argue that some of those harms are connected caused by the oil and gas that these producers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are producing Mm -hmm. and oil and gas that they've produced that has been burned so this isn't you know, Chevron in the conservatory with the knife. Uh, this is more like uh, Chevron all over the world with microscopic <laughs> molecules of carbon dioxide everywhere in the troposphere. Uh, how do you do that? How do you uh, how do you make the case that a court or anybody can know? what these particular defendants should be responsible for. Well, and so that gets back, uh, at least in part, to what I was talking about a little bit, which is this cumulative carbon analysis that's really the science uh, behind it is described in some detail in our lawsuit. But what that does is it allows an accurate calculation of net CO2 and methane emissions that are attributable to each of the defendants. And so what it does is it quantifies the amount and type of fossil fuel products that each defendant extracted and placed in the stream of commerce, right? And then it multiplies those quantities by each of each fossil fuel producer's carbon factor. And, and by suing as many um, of the fossil fuel industry companies of, as we have, taken together, those companies are responsible for 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So... You know, it's like, can you do? Can, do you have the knife that went into the person? Right? Can you can you trace the exact uh, greenhouse gas carbon molecule that floated over to Marin County? No, but that's not the point. And I don't think you need to do that when you have twenty percent of global carbon emissions that were created by these entities, and you have impacts that we're suffering in Marin, Marin County caused by sea level rise, and you have the science that shows the impact on climate change and sea level rise from carbon emissions, I think that you can make a good legal argument for a connection with our county. And, and in fact, I guess we have done this in, in the past, right? Court systems, when they've looked, you mentioned the tobacco litigation, but but surely there, there was a lot of discussion back then about what... What amount of cancer did Lucky Strikes contribute to, or did uh, Marlboro contribute to, or so on? And Absolutely. I know in the 
In the environmental area, when we're talking about uh, liability for Superfund sites, right, right contaminated areas, right, uh, and and you have hundreds of chemical manufacturers who may have uh, contributed right. to a to a landfill, for instance, right, right, right. And thank you for the Superfund reminder. I think that's a good analog. Yeah. One of the the questions that I have uh, that that's related. Uh, to this has to do with, uh, with with the court systems and 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 the states that we're in. And I know I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but uh, what's interesting to me about this case is that it actually, it procedurally, it hasn't moved very far. That is, before we even get to the point of of seeing whether or not the county can prove its harms and the connection to uh, to the behavior of the oil and gas companies, we have to decide. What law even applies? Now, Now you made the case that uh, California law, California state law uh, involving uh, nuisance and some other what we'll call causes of action, other sort of theories of, 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 uh, uh, of getting a remedy, that, that you went into a state court and alleged uh, state common law. Uh, that would uh, attempt to get the remedy that you're seeking. But but now you're in a federal court, actually, right? Well, we're on our and, way back to state court. Okay, so can you tell me a little bit yeah. about that? Yeah, so this is very interesting because, as you know, there have been different lawsuits filed by different entities. And, um, and we just had the recent dismissal of the lawsuits filed by New York, San Francisco, and Oakland. And, and those lawsuits are really quite different from ours. The decisions by the courts in those cases were really based on analysis of federal common law. And All right. As a law professor, I'm allowed to drop at least one footnote, in this case, about the common law. Because a lot of times you hear the phrase common law and many people aren't quite sure exactly what that means. The best way to think of the common law the way that Kate Sears and I are discussing it is as a gap filler in public policy. It's unwritten law where judges use evolving principles of fairness to resolve individual disputes where statutes and constitutions leave room for that. So, so imagine you're at the Piggly Wiggly and a giant pyramid of canned goods crashes down and injures your foot. There may not be a state statute anywhere that regulates the stacking of canned goods in a grocery store, but using the common law, a judge would be able to apply principles of foreseeability and duty of care to resolve that issue. One more thing. The common law in the United States comes in two flavors, state and federal. Now, state judges use state common law all the time to resolve issues like at the Piggly Wiggly. Federal common law is much rarer and is usually seen in really big disputes that involve national geographic issues, uh, like the dispute of one state suing another state over water pollution, for instance. So that's all you need. Number one, common law is a regulatory gap filler. And number two, it comes in two flavors, state, which is like vanilla, and federal, which is rum raisin. Um. And, you know, in, in all of those cases, both the, the New York judge and the California federal judge who, who made those recent decisions said, you know, you can't have a, a state law claim cannot exist 
um, that involves climate change and that this, the, it really, climate change issues need to be addressed by a political body, by Congress. Now, we disagree with that, but, and we also had a different federal court judge because our case was just to get back to the procedure for a minute. Our case was removed from state court to federal court. And our federal, our federal court judge ruled that we needed to go back to state court because our lawsuits are properly uh, governed by state law. And so, um, you know, the, the defendants have appealed that decision. And this is just sort of a, um, I think, part of a what we anticipated uh, as a gambit of, of delay, uh, regardless of what we did. But, but we feel very strongly that our judge got it right and that we will be back in state court and we're, and we're, we're moving back in, in that direction. Um, you know, it's, there's a couple of things that I think are, are sort of interesting. Um, you know, one, it's kind of ironic, if, if you want to put it that way, that, that a group of, of fossil fuel industry companies that have spent a tremendous amount of money on um, political contributions and a misinformation campaign now say that only the political system should be the one that makes decisions about um, their liability. And I, I just sort of flag that as, as an irony. Um, but, you know, we're really not trying to find a solution for climate change in these lawsuits. We're trying to get compensation. We're trying to get damages for, in, for injury. And that's absolutely an appropriate request to make in court. And it's appropriate for us to be in state court. And I think that this whole um, argument that the companies are making is really in some ways misleading. And if you think back, I was recently reminded um, by someone that it was state court judges in Delaware who really acting against the tide of federal decisions to the contrary, found discrimination in public school education unconstitutional before Brown v. Board of Education was decided. I mean, I, you know, there's such a strong role. I need to tell you this as a law professor. There's such a strong and important role for our state courts in really making the decision, making decisions about impacts in the locality over which they have uh, jurisdiction and responsibility that I think um, this kind of, I think, misled argument that if it's a big problem like climate change, it's, it's got to be a federal issue and so states have no role is, is, is just a dodge and it's really misguided and it's misleading. And uh, in some ways it's, it's obfuscating what the real issue is. And so, um, but back to your initial step, yeah, it seems like we've been, we fouled a year ago and we haven't gotten very far. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and, and you're right. And, but we're sure hoping we get right back uh, to our state court where we filed uh, soon. Well, so this is fascinating to me. And, and, and just to clarify some things, maybe for the listeners, <laughs> is I mean, what we're really talking about is, what sort of law should apply? And, and uh, Marin County has has brought up, as we've said, arguments under California common law. And what the defendants then have argued 
is that that in fact should be preempted, that is it should be trumped by whatever federal law is. And the federal law, they say, would be would be the, the one that would come into play would be federal common law. Now, the reason that uh, we assume they're arguing that is that there is a Supreme Court decision from 2011, which says that if you're applying federal common law in a climate case, that that law is again, wait for it, uh, displaced or trumped by the Clean Air Act. Uh, and since the Clean Air Act uh, is the way that Congress has, has decided to, to uh, address uh, air pollution, that as a result, the federal common law doesn't exist in this fashion. Uh, and then neither does the state law that, that is being preempted by the federal law that is now being displaced by, by the Clean Air Act. <laughs> and so, and so that, that's the big question, right? And, and, and it's this, a daisy chain. Uh, yes. And, and this uh, lawsuit that's been brought, as you say, by the city of Oakland and San Francisco, uh, they've lost on that argument, right? The defendants won that. And you have so far won on that argument, but only one of you can be right. Right. I mean, only one of those cases can be right. And so at some point, the courts are going to have to decide whether you're right or whether the uh, the uh, the uh, other judge is right in the San Francisco, Oakland cases. Sure. And I but of course, we obviously think we're right. And and we did, I, I believe, bring a sort of a, a, a broader suite of of state law claims that were then were brought in the San Francisco and Oakland cases. And there there were some procedural differences. Um, you know, they they went into federal court and agreed to that jurisdiction. And, and we have certainly not done that. But but as a theoretical question, um, the, it is interesting and uh, you know who knows where the argument will go from here. But I, I think it's important for for everyone to keep in mind that we're not we're not seeking to have the defendants regulated. And so often, as you know, you get into the conversation about displacement and federal preemption when you're in a regulatory environment and you're looking for a legislative fix. And then you could get into conversations about does the Clean Air Act preempt or, you know, you're in a different kind of legal regulatory environment. We're not, that's not what we're trying to achieve here at all. And so um, I think it's, it's particularly unfortunate that some of the the courts. I really think because it's a it, they're looking at the problem of climate change as a big and and daunting problem, and it somehow feels like it should be a federal issue. And that's really not what the law what their lawsuits are about. And and in those decisions, it's my impression that perhaps one of the most important aspects that's been lost is the misrepresentation by the fossil fuel industry. I mean, this is really profoundly about what did you know and uh, and then what did you do and not do to mislead the public? Um, there's nothing federal about that, those claims and those actions. It's misrepresentation. And, so, and as you point out, <clears throat> uh, just to read from the complaint, uh, uh, where it's it's alleged that uh, Chevron and and the other defendants engaged, uh, and I'm quoting, in a coordinated multi-front effort to conceal and deny their own knowledge of climate threats, to discredit scientific evidence, and to persistently create doubt in the minds of customers, consumers, regulators, the media, journalists, teachers, and the public 
about the reality of the consequences of the impacts of their fossil fuel pollution. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question about this. You, you, you offered a, a, a number of really great uh, examples of some of the evidence, and I assume that if this case goes forward in the discovery process in which you're able to uh, solicit more information uh, that's, that's, that is not publicly available, that you would probably have even more information that, that, that might support this. I, I know that your background, uh, of course, is a, a, as a lawyer and that you, you worked, in, in fact, with the consumer law section uh, of the California Attorney General's office for, for some years. And I know that you worked on predatory lending, that that was one of the uh, large uh, types of litigation that you were involved in, and that you were also involved in cases having to do with fraud of financial institutions. Um, and you have, have brought up just now the idea that, that one of the, what you see, one of the sort of big factors in this case is the behavior uh, of the oil and gas companies uh, insofar as they were attempting to either, e either hide or even mislead uh, the, the people on the science. Do you see a relationship between those things, and is that maybe one of the reasons that you are so so passionate about this issue? Yeah, oh, it definitely is why I'm passionate about it. And when I was in the consumer law section at the California Attorney General's office, our, the responsibility of our section was to enforce business and professions codes section seventeen two hundred and seventeen five hundred, which really go to unfair business practices and misleading representations in advertising. And so, misleading representations, misleading the public, um, really resonates very, very strongly for me. And and when you add on to that, my responsibility as an elected official to represent my constituents and do the best I can for the residents of our community, um, th those two pieces taken together, I think, is what really is why I feel so passionate about it. But um, I also am glad to have had the experience that I did in the in the attorney general's office because it, it frankly made me come to this issue with something of a critical eye. I don't I feel strongly about filing good lawsuits against bad actors. And so I wanted to make sure when our county and our county council was really considering about whether this was an appropriate action for a county government. I wanted to make sure that I felt that we had a really good, compelling story, and uh, and and I and I felt that way, and and part of that came came out of my legal experience and wanting to make sure that I had good evidence to go after bad actors and that people genuinely were bad actors, and I think it also gave me a sense of of um, the impacts of misleading the public. Um, you know, when I, I did really all things related to the financial crisis at the attorney general's office and uh, the predatory lending piece, you know, I was the lead lawyer in lawsuit. We first lawsuit filed against Countrywide for predatory lending. And the, and the stories and the information about the impact on homeowners of what happened to them because of the misrepresentation about um, the the home the homes they were buying and the loans they were getting and and whether they would actually be able to sustain their payments on a home going forward. It was just devastating, the consequences to people uh, when you misrepresent um, 
what you're trying to, you know, the situation that they're in or what you're trying to convince them to do or participate in. Um, And I certainly also saw a lot of a lot of greenwashing and a lot of efforts to convince the public of the benefit of of certain products where there really really wasn't that benefit. So it it does resonate very, very strongly for me. And and we see this see this here. the misrepresentation representation to people. And I, and I feel if we'd known, if any of us as consumers had known in the, in the, the 60s and 70s what the fossil fuel industry's experts were telling them what they knew, we might have made some different decisions ourselves. Think, about, think of how far ahead we could be now, much farther ahead, um, than we are now if we'd had more information available to us uh, 40 years ago. And I just think that's a tremendous disservice to all of us as consumers and as human beings. Let me ask you a question that I hear sometimes uh, among environmentalists and progressives who are interested in fighting the battle against climate change. Um, the uh, the lawsuit uh, like like yours and like and like others, New York City, as you know, is is filed a, a climate suit. City of Seattle, state of Rhode Island, and and, and so on. Uh, one criticism I sometimes hear is that this is at best a distraction uh, to what uh, a stronger policy initiative about climate change might look like from from the progressive side. And another thing that I hear sometimes is, here's the version of the argument. Uh, the version would be, it's fine for a county like Marin, which is a wealthy county comparatively, and, and cities like San Francisco and Seattle and New York City, which are all wealthy municipalities. Um, it, it, it's fine for them to be conducting uh, a, a large sort of ambitious lawsuit like this against Chevron and Exxon and so on, uh, but that there are other municipalities, poorer cities, um, that are even more in need, the New Orleans of the world and, and Galveston, and even small places like Tybee Island, Georgia, uh, that these are other places that um, have even harder problems and are going to be swallowed up in some cases even faster, and they're never going to get their fair share of adaptation funds through get litigation like this. Um, what, what do you say to that? Is, is there some truth in that or, or is there something that, uh, uh, a, another perspective that you have on it? Well, that's a, a fabulous question and it raises so many issues. And so um, the first thing I'd say is, you know, when Marin County filed suit a year ago in July, the same day the city of San, I mean, excuse me, the county of San Mateo filed suit and the city of Imperial Beach in Southern California filed suit. By San Diego in, there. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Imperial Beach is not a wealthy jurisdiction and it's suffering significant impacts from sea level rise. So these lawsuits are not about you don't have to be a fancy, well-off jurisdiction to recognize the impacts 
from sea level rise in your communities and to take action. Um, you know, these are contingent fee lawsuits. We are not spending public dollars on the lawsuits. So um, I, I'd say I would welcome, and we have other jurisdictions jumping on board, you know, and I think it's Delaware that's that's joined in and the city of Baltimore, the city of Richmond. So I, I'll, let me get back to where I started. When, when we began, the first three entities was, you know, our two counties in the city of Imperial Beach. Uh, we next were sort of joined um, by the city of Richmond, which filed suit, which is just across the bay from us, uh, a, a disadvantaged community. And then uh, the city of Santa Cruz and the county of Santa Cruz also filed suit. So I, I think, you know, I, anyone who has, who is suffering the consequences uh, of sea level rise, I'd say, you know, you're welcome. <laughs> Come on and join us and, and come on board. There, there is the, the other question though of the climate equity issues. And, um, Sunday evening I was introducing and in doing question and answers about a really tremendous film called Anote's Ark that's about Anote Tong, who was the president of Kiribati for 12 years. And uh, it's a it's a really striking film because it focuses on um, President Tong and his travels around the world, talking to the Pope and the UN, and and trying to get the world's attention to create uh, a funding stream for some of the the island jurisdictions and third world, uh, less developed locations, whether they're islands or other cities or towns or areas that are already suffering the impacts of climate change and sea level rise without having been the ones that had the largest, the most significant greenhouse gas emissions. So it it focuses on his activities, but then it also focuses on a resident of Kiribati and the impact on her family. And she ends up going to work in New Zealand. So you get in a very sort of indirect and personal way, uh, a sense of climate refugee issues that we're going to be obviously seeing at a much greater scale. And one of the first questions that I got from the audience after that film was, you know, what do you think about sort of the moral um, uh, imperative or issues associated with responsibility to help nations and jurisdictions that are suffering those consequences way ahead of everyone else without having really been significant contributors. Um, and I think these are just crucially important issues. And um, I'm, uh, I guess, enough of a skeptic that I could, while supporting the morality of that obligation, be skeptical that, that people will step up uh, and do the right thing. But that may be too skeptical. I mean, look at how generous people are uh, and and the support that they provide when there's a significant hurricane and there's a, a major environmental disaster. People are tremendously generous. And so um, I'm hoping that uh, that it's far challenging though, right? If you have more of a slow accumulation of higher seas, you know, it used to be that, that folks talked about climate change as a slow moving disaster. I think it's now moving a lot faster, but, but it is easier for all of us in human nature to respond to uh, an instance of disaster. It's more difficult to think longer term, but we're all going to have to change how we think about 
being in the world regardless. And so um, I think that's a tremendously important issue for all of us to, to think about and figure out ways to take action on. Kate Sears, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thanks so much. You too, Rob. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That concludes my interview with Kate Sears, member of the Board of Supervisors of Marin County. Next, I'll be talking with Tom McGarity of the Law School at the University of Texas. But first, a short break. Hi, this is David Flores, Policy Analyst for the Center for Progressive Reform. When floodwaters recede, toxic contamination remains. Runoff from a scrapyard leaves lead dust on city sidewalks. At CPR, we're working on the pollution sources that you can't see and that the government regulators aren't looking for. Visit our Toxic Floodwaters project on CPR's website and take a trip with us through Virginia's communities and waterways, from the state's highlands to its tidewater. And we'll take a look at how climate change and lax industrial regulation threaten public safety and our economy. In our last episode of the season, we have a lanyap. That's what Louisianans call a little something extra. That something extra for us is a short chat with Tom McGarity. Tom McGarity is a law professor at the University of Texas, an expert in tort law, in environmental law, and administrative law. Just as important to us, he is a co-founder of the Center for Progressive Reform and a former president of the organization. Tom's especially interested in large products liability lawsuits, the kind of disputes that involve nationwide claims against drug manufacturers, the tobacco industry, or other groups. Tom's a lawyer's lawyer. He's the expert that top lawyers call when they're looking for special insights into a case. So I called Tom McGarity over Skype and asked him what effects he thought these climate lawsuits might have on the oil and gas industry and on climate policy in general. And wouldn't you know it, we also ended up talking about the Supreme Court and Brett Kavanaugh. Tom, what do you think about these common law climate change litigation cases in general. Is there something that we can, is there a larger pattern that we can read from this? Um, something to do with maybe what a general national strategy to address climate change might look like? Or are these just uh, idiosyncratic cases that um, that don't have a lot uh, of potential to influence the national debate? Well, they're clearly not idiosyncratic because they're being filed all over the place. As you say, you mentioned uh, the West Coast, but uh, Boulder, Colorado has filed a, uh, a similar suit. State of New York filed a suit. Baltimore has filed a suit. Rhode Island has filed a suit. So they're, they're all over the country, and they're roughly raising the same claims. Um, and what they're going to is... Uh, again, you mentioned the damages, and what causes the damages, they say, is the unreasonable uh, sale of your product, uh, that is the uh, petroleum uh, that you've been selling for decades and decades, uh, all the way back to the late 1960s, knowing full well uh, that burning these products uh, is going to release greenhouse gases, uh, 
carbon dioxide in particular, and that uh, this is going to cause global warming. And global warming is going to have consequences, and those consequences were uh, predictable uh, at the time, and you basically deceived the public by uh, hiding the information you had, uh, taking your own efforts to uh, adjust to what you knew were going to be rising sea, sea levels. Uh, so in terms of your uh, offshore oil platforms and that sort of thing. And not only that, but actually uh, attempting to uh, take advantage of it by uh, understanding that as the uh, ice melted in, in the, the Arctic area, you're going to have more places to drill. So there, there, this is not idiosyncratic. Uh, it is going to be difficult uh, to win these cases. There's absolutely no question about that. They, they are fighting a very much an uphill battle. Um, several of them uh, have, uh, or a couple of them at least, have already uh, been dismissed by district courts uh, and are now uh, pending their way through the appellate process. I think that the, uh, uh, the cities in those cases fully expected that, that it was going to get appealed. So uh, it's, it's going to be a long and rough road to hoe. Uh, but they, at the end of the day, if they can establish uh, that uh, the defendants were well aware of the fact that their products could cause these problems and that they can establish a cause-effect relationship that, in fact, they have caused these problems, um, there may be a compensation there. It seems that there are maybe two things you might be hoping for if you're an environmentalist looking at these cases and you're concerned about climate change. One is that cities would be able to recover money in order to prepare for climate change, uh, which, of course, uh, you, you can't you, you can't insulate yourself from all of the impacts of climate change, but that could go a long way toward preserving property, uh, keeping people safe, uh, preventing deaths, things like this. And then the second thing would be if the uh, amounts of compensation were large enough that could, as you imply, send a signal to oil and gas companies that they just can't ignore this issue anymore. And then, in fact, maybe they should be thinking about uh, expanding their energy portfolios to include more green energy or to downplay uh, fossil fuel and and so on. Do you think that second part is, is realistic? Do you think that uh, in, in the same way that uh, let's say tobacco companies, when they realized that they were open to lawsuit, um, they arguably changed some of their behavior or at least opened themselves up to the idea of, of certain kinds of regulation or uh, changed some of their strategies to selling tobacco overseas as opposed to in the United States as much as they did. Do you think that those kinds of changes um, might be expected in the oil and gas industry as a result of lawsuits like this? Well, it's possible. Uh, the, the oil companies would say, look, we're already changing. We're already expanding our portfolios. Uh, we didn't need the incentive of these, uh, of these lawsuits to, to do it. So that's one, one response is, well, they were moving in that direction anyway, but there's no question that the threat of large losses for something they did uh, sometime in the past uh, might inspire them to, to to move even faster. It should definitely inspire them not to be covering up information they have in terms of the uh, the impact that their uh, activities 
are having and their products are having on uh, on human health and the environment. But going to the tobacco litigation, that's the classic model uh, for these cases brought by states uh, and and in that case, uh, some cities as well, and the tobacco litigation. Um, what did come out of the tobacco litigation was remarkable uh, discovery of what the tobacco companies knew. Millions of documents and just just lots of smoking gun documents that, that shows what they knew. Many of those documents have already been made available in the, in the context of the oil companies, but much more may still be available. That kind of a, a spectacle is something certainly the oil companies want to avoid uh, as these documents that they have and testimony coming from uh, possible whistle, whistleblowers and that sort of thing come out in these trials. And these trials are perfect forums uh, for that. Now, another thing in the tobacco litigation that uh, wound up in the remedies was uh, the their acquiescence in the Food and Drug Administration um, having a shot at regulating this. Uh, the Supreme Court had... Uh, had held that they had no authority to, uh, the Food and Drug Administration had no authority to regulate t uh, tobacco, or at least uh, uh, cigarettes, and the uh, tobacco companies acquiesced in giving them authority to do so. Uh, and that could come out of this litigation as well, is, is, is uh, the oil companies being more uh, supportive of legislative uh, solutions. Uh, in this day and age, probably it'd have to be at the state level. Uh, it's not clear that, uh, that the, uh, at the federal government, the federal Congress is gonna be passing uh, strong climate change litigation uh, anytime soon, but that that's could be down the road as well. Well, I wanna ask you about the, the, the preemption issue. Uh, there are a lot of procedural uh, issues that uh, have to be resolved before any of these cases actually gets to trial. Uh, and the trial, as you point out, is really important because uh, win or whether they win or lose, ultimately, the trial is the forum in which they're going to be able to air uh, much of this discovered evidence that you're talking about and the testimony of, of, the, of the kind that was so damaging in the tobacco litigation cases. But in order to get to trial... As you point out, uh, plaintiffs are going to have to establish that they have some kind of a legal claim for relief, and they're going to have to show that this legal claim based in common law is, is not preempted by federal statute, and it's not uh, displaced by federal statute if they're referring to federal common law. And many of these legal issues are being litigated right now. And as you point out, every time a decision comes from a trial court on one of these legal issues, it gets appealed. And I assume at some point, uh, we're going to have to take this all the way up to the US Supreme Court to resolve some of these issues. So my question is, how does Justice Kennedy's retirement from the Supreme Court affect all of this? Uh, and is, this, uh, is the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, something that we should be paying attention to as we try to evaluate these cases? Oh, I think so. I think um, uh, a, a Justice Kavanaugh uh, would 
almost unquestionably uh, be very skeptical of these lawsuits. Do you think, uh, Tom, that in the next 10 years, we'll see a successful lawsuit um, for damages from climate impacts against an oil and gas company based on common law tort claims? If we do, it's going to have to be a state common law claim, and it's going to have to be a claim uh, like the Martin and San Mateo counties uh, case. Well, Tom, thanks so much for talking with us today. Sure. Happy to be with you. That was Tom McGarity of the University of Texas School of Law. Before that, I spoke with Kate Sears, a member of the Board of Supervisors of Marin County, California. This is the last episode of Season 1 of CPR's Connect the Dots, but no need to shed a tear because we are already working on Season 2. So we'll have more information as it comes available, and we'll be putting it up on our website. And while you're on the website, shoot us an email. Let us know what you thought of the first season of Connect the Dots and any ideas you have for future episodes. For now, I want to thank CPR's magnificent Brian Gum for his production assistance on this episode and all episodes in the series. And as always, for the music, we are grateful to Lobo Loco. Take care. You've been listening to Connect the Dots podcast by the Center for Progressive Reform. We're a legal policy center helping to build healthy communities, safe workplaces, and a more resilient planet. Check us out and subscribe to our podcast by visiting our website, www.progressivereform.org. Thanks. See you there.